0: The Scottish Business Network
1: podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 86. When Edinburgh raised Neil McInnes and his childhood friend Andy Whitney were still in their 20s, they spotted an opportunity in the residential lettings market. Having both experienced poor service from letting agencies as tenants, they believed the fusty image of solicitors in pinstripe suits was due a shake up with much greater care and attention. Paid to the way that both property owners and tenants were looked after. 15 years on, Umega Lettings has around 50 staff and in December 2021 was voted UK Letting Agency of the Year. Neil, who was once literally the poster boy for Scotland's Entrepreneurial Spark initiative, also has some very interesting views on the ecosystem for Scottish startups and what he believes to be a misplaced emphasis on encouraging young entrepreneurs to sell equity and plan for an early exit rather than organically growing the sort of long-term Scottish businesses that are the lifeblood of our economy. So lots to talk about then, and I interviewed Neil on the 21st of September 2022. But before we start, I just wanted to say how delighted I am that Christine Essen co-founder of the Scottish Business Network, has recently joined me as co-host of this series. You may have heard her in the last two episodes, and she is doing a brilliant job. Thanks, Christine. Neil McKinnis, a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. You're at home today, and I happen to know that it's not far away from me. So why don't you start by telling us a bit about where you are and perhaps what the view from your window is like, this fine September afternoon.
0: Hi, Fraser. Uh, yeah, I, I am just in the Lammermuir Hills, a few miles outside of a village called Gifford in East Lothian. Um, and it is a beautiful sunny day. And I've got, yeah, the Lammermuirs are looking resplendent today. Um, warmer, probably warmer than it looks uh, outside, but I'm not complaining.
1: Oh, I've got, I've got to get outside now. I've been inside all day. I need to get out for a walk this afternoon. Um, now let's, let's start at the beginning. So you're from Edinburgh originally. Tell us about life growing up, what family life was, was like and, and what were your original career ambitions?
0: Okay, well, I'm from Christorphin originally in uh, west of Edinburgh. Um and life growing up was was terrific, you know, um really really fantastic upbringing, you know, g- great family situation. Um you know, I've got an older sister Beth and and um you know, we we were at home with mum and dad. We were a very sporty family. You know, my dad was um well mum and dad were both heavily into basketball. Uh you know, that was their kind of background. So so Beth and I got involved in that and I just, I just grew up kind of loving the game. So early, early career ambitions were, were, were definitely to play basketball. Um, and yeah, that, that didn't last too long after reality kind of checked and you, you know, you start, uh, you start playing against people who really can play the game and you realize, okay, this is, I'm, I'm potentially not going to make money doing this, but, uh, no, it was absolutely brilliant. You know, I played, I played, I lived to breathe basketball until I was about 21, 22
1: obviously a great passion there but you you actually ended up studying mechanical engineering at at University of Edinburgh Uh, and then your career path having a little snoop on LinkedIn seems a little bit eccentric if you don't mind me saying so, you you work for a, a tech company then in strategic marketing for Save the Children in London then for a recycling business back in Scotland, so how did that unusual career path develop, what was the thinking behind it?
0: Yeah, yeah so when I left university, I, I got a graduate position um, working for a, a tech company called Agilent uh, just outside uh, just outside of Edinburgh. They were based in Queensferry, um, and that was a fantastic job. You know, to go from you know mechanical engineering uh, at, at, from a university and then straight into that job, working in, in kind of product. Marketing or product management, you know, it was a, it was a sort of business or marketing focused side of, of the tech, of working for a big tech company. And it was just a fantastic organization. Um, really great people, really great place to, place to work. Um, I, I loved the work that I did. I got to, I got to kind of travel all over the world and things and just really enjoyed it. But, um, I, I, after, after a couple of years just became a little bit, um, I think disillusion, not disillusion is maybe too strong a word, but, um, I felt very far removed from the customer. It was hard to know kind of waking up in the morning what difference I was making. You know, we were, we were selling telecom monitoring equipment to big telecom operators all over the world. Um, so I guess if you kind of worked it through our very expensive equipment that, that I was helping kind of put together and sell would, I guess mean people's phone calls would drop off slightly less than they might otherwise. <laughs> so it was difficult. It just felt like a te- a pretty tenuous link to, uh, to reality, to the customer, to really, to right. making a difference yeah. in people's lives. So I, I, I did that for a couple of years. And then at, at the age of 22, 23, um, I went off, I took off traveling for, for a year and a half, did the, you know, went off around the world and, and that was just a fantastic experience and came back 18 months later um, and moved down to London thought, OK, this is, you know, I now I uh, haven't learned everything I, I did f- when I was in my first job. Uh, I then managed to get a position at Save the Children in London working in fundraising and thought, oh, this is this is it. You know, this is direct. Uh, you know, my job is is going to be directly related to having an impact And. Changing the world and, and that was a fantastic organization. Met some incredible people. Met my wife, Kelly was, was working, was there at the time. And that was how we met. And, um, yeah, just loved it. Just loved living in London and, and living the London life and just really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then got a little bit disillusioned with that as well, Fraser, to be honest. There's
1: a pattern here. There's
0: a pattern emerging, <laughs> um, where, yeah what happened there so it was it was full of really kind of well meaning people or certainly were, they were on the surface anyway and my job at Save the Children was to be looking at how effectively we were fundraising and could we do it better um, and the, the answer was yeah we could do it a great deal better but it was going to require change and it was going to require some you know tough tough moves within the organization and and They, for whatever reason at that time, they just weren't willing to do it. And, and, but yeah, I was, I was getting good feedback. I was being promoted and it was, it was just, it was, it was, it, it was kind of working out well for me personally. But it was, there was just something pretty hypocritical, I think, about the whole thing. So I thought, no, this isn't, this isn't for me. Kelly and I were looking to, to leave London and we, Kelly got a job, um, back in Edinburgh, even though she's from South Wales, she got a job up in Edinburgh. So we moved. We moved back up to Edinburgh and I left Save the Children and I thought, right, um, I got a job or I, I found this company, applied for this job and, and got a job working for a small Scottish company that was recycling, sort a private company, you know, profit making. But they were, um, their business model was recycling mobile phones and printer cartridges. So take, making sure printer cartridges weren't going into landfill. They were, they were taking mobile phones and sending them off to Africa. And it was like, Hey, this is the, (laughs) this is great. This is the perfect kind of compromise. This is, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And, um. Oh that that just was not a good experience you know no just really? it was just a, I get, I learned more in that 6 months about how not to do company culture uh, than any other <laughs> job I had before you know things like uh thumb scanners on the wall to clock in at, in the morning and clock out at the end of the day you know just a just a very kind of low trust environment and just yeah really really interesting so so that that was not um yeah, that was not for me. So that, that, whether that makes them any, maybe, maybe that, if that makes that journey any more sensible, I don't know. Well, but there is a, yeah, the, there is
1: a, there is a logic to it, isn't there? And it, but then I'm intrigued to know what led from that for you to take the big plunge to launch your own business in a completely different area again. And did you always at the back of your mind have a sort of urge to be a master of your own destiny and run your own organization?
0: I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I always had an urge to do it, but I think by the time I'd left, but by the time I'd left that third, third job, um, yeah, I definitely was, I definitely had, had given up hope that there was an organization out there that, that was going to do, was going to be all the things that I wanted it to be. So, but by by then I was, I was definitely interested in, in, um, working for myself and, and kind of doing things my own way because I, I, I just thought the rest of the world was mad. You know, I think from, from learning how, different organizations had worked and learning what what you know just how how the real world of work worked I just I, I thought it was all a bit I thought it was all a bit crazy I, I just thought there was a better way of doing it um the stars kind of aligned because my you know my my best friend from uh from when I was young Andy you know I moved in across the road from Andy, uh, when I was 11 years old and we, you know, we grew up together. You know, we were his, his, um, he lived across the street from me. His, his family was like my second family. It was, it was just, we were so tight. Our parents were, were, were best friends, you know, still, still are today. So it's, um, Andy was, was on a, was on a similar journey to me and that looked completely different, but, when when I kind of came back to Edinburgh in uh, in what was that late two thousand six, early two thousand seven, uh, Andy was reaching a similar point. He got to via a different road, where he was pretty disillusioned. He was pretty fed up. He was now he was hell bent on on kind of doing things his own way and working for himself. And the, the stars aligned. There was an opportunity for us to, for us to kind of come together. His background was in surveying. He was working in property in Edinburgh at that time, just doing, you know, bits and bobs for people. And he, he was looking after a small lettings portfolio. He was, he was, he was sort of on the, on the first rung of the ladder, if you like, in that area. And, And there was an opportunity for me to, for me to work with him and kind of go in with him. And it was just, It it was the perfect opportunity. We, we gave it, we, we wanted to do things our way. We both had our own experience as private tenants in Edinburgh. Um, not been a good experience at all. And we, we thought we could make a dent. You know, we thought we could, we could make a difference. And this was a perfect opportunity to kind of do things our way. So we, we teamed up, uh, not knowing if it was going to work, but, um, hell bent on giving it a shot.
1: So what, what, what was, can you tell us a bit more about that thinking? What was the kind of USP? Was it all about, uh, well, you'd had some bad experiences with culture. So presumably as you went on to build the organization, you wanted a very positive culture among the people working with you, but also the way you looked after your, your uh, property owners and tenants.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't, we, we didn't really know strongly at that time what we were about, but we knew what we were not. You know, that was much easier for us to put a label on. And we weren't these pinstripe suited, you know, guys that, that behaved like solicitors and just kept people at arm's, re- arm's reach and, and really de, I guess, depersonalized or, or sort of dehumanized the whole, um, rental process or rental experience. That was certainly our, our direct experience of it. Um, so we were just, you know, we were, we were two guys who were going to look after people and do, and, and just do the best we could for them. Um, and that, and that, that was the spirit with which we, we went into it. You know, we worked, we worked blooming hard. Um, and we just, we, we, we tried to look after, look after people. And I guess we, because Andy and I had that background, behind us you know that sort of trust and and everything under underpin our relationship it was and we were just so kind of fed up with the way with our own our own kind of career experience up to that point that it was just yeah it was just the perfect outlet for for what we wanted to do
1: so we'll come back to the kind of early days uh of later on but can you tell us about how it's developed since i mean what would have been some of the big challenges the uh, successes and, and and what how would you sort of describe the businesses that exist today?
0: Yeah, so the so the, the big challenges I think along the way that we had to get right and took us years years to get right. We've been we've been 15 years now in business. Um, was was when we got when the customer base grew. You know, we our, our approach was was uh, successful. People liked dealing with us. They liked what we did. Uh, we were we were able to to successfully grow a customer base. Um, then you start to employ people. And of course, when you first, when you first start to hire people, no one's heard of you. No one, and you don't have really, really have much to offer. You don't really know what you're doing. You know, we were in our twenties. So it's hard to get people to, to come to work for you. And, um, yeah, we, and we didn't really know what we were looking for in terms of hiring people. So it took us, it took us a long time to get that right. Um, and then, but once we did, once we started hiring, the right people, I guess, for our organisation and what we were trying to do, um, then it, that then you can start, then you can really start to to go in the right direction. Then you can look at the conditions that you're creating, and you can look at your company culture and all that kind of thing. But when you're when you're just bringing the wrong people in the door from the start, it's uh, I don't think you can do it. You know, I don't I don't I don't think you can make significant progress in terms of the rest of the company culture and that kind of thing. So that was the biggest that was the biggest thing we had to get right. If you look at where we are today, we've just we've got we've got a fantastic team, you know, we've got more than 50 people working in the organization now and it's just um I'm just really proud of of being part of the team. You know, this is the organization I always wanted to work for. Um you know, there's not a thumb scanner in sight uh, <laughs> on our walls. Um so it's uh, yeah, I think that's been the, that's been the biggest difference. There's obviously a whole, whole load of work and learning and mistakes that we've made along the way. But I think, I think getting to the point where we, we knew who the right people were for Umega and, um, we, we had an, we had a strong enough proposition to attract them into the, into the company. And that was, That was huge. You know, that was the turning point. Certainly.
1: I mean, just looking at your website, having seen your offices in, in Quartermile in Edinburgh, it's sort of a mile away from my own sort of experiences, very dowdy kind of lettings companies, you know, as you say, very cold. It feels more like a kind of young tech company, the sort of culture that you've, you've developed there. Um, now going back to the, the early days, uh, now you, you were part of the entrepreneurial spark. Incubator program it was based, uh, which was based at the RBS HQ at Gogoburn. In fact, you were literally the the poster boy for entrepreneurial spark. Uh, and I think I remember seeing you many years ago before I'd, I'd met you uh, on the website and so on. So, how how useful did you find that support looking back?
0: It, it was it was a great experience. So we when when eSpark came along, I remember watching a um, BBC documentary on on eSpark um and it just and it just being fantastic just the lights going on and just being like because oh, it looked like entrepreneur school like it looked like hey cut you know this is here is this this thing this program um which is gonna is gonna teach you all about starting a business and running the business and all this kind of stuff and we were I think I, I saw that documentary we were probably about five years in by that point and i hadn't really th- you know i just thought it wasn't for us you know we weren't it, it, not that it, i didn't want to do the program but it just like you mega lettings wasn't for eSpark like it didn't I, I just hadn't considered that there'd be a there'd be any kind of tie up there and then I, we were at a, an event and then i were at an event somewhere and i can't remember what the event was and there was someone there from eSpark they had a stall in the in the trade show or whatever and uh Going up and chatting to someone there and they were like, yeah, you should apply. Like, you should come, like, come on in. You know, you could learn this, you could learn that. So yet, lo and behold, we applied. We got interviewed. We kind of went through and we got, we got a place on the, on the accelerator, in the, in the kind of incubator. Um, so it was great. You know, I thought, brilliant. This is off we go to, to entrepreneur school. This is great because we'd been so, I I guess up to that point, we're about seven years in by this point. We've been so kind of internally focused um on on what we were doing. And not maybe an internally focus is the wrong word. We were kind of isolated. You know, it really felt like we were we were doing it by ourselves. Our sector isn't the networking isn't isn't very good in our sector. The agents don't really aren't very open. They don't really speak to other letting agents. We we try to change that. We try we try to be a, a the opposite example of that. But it's just tough. It's just tough to build uh, good, good friendships and good relationships within, between lighting agencies. So we were, yeah, we, we definitely felt, um, quite alone, I guess, in what we we're doing. Luckily, you know, we had, we had each other in terms of being able to peer support us, ourselves and that kind of thing. But when we got into eSpark, it was just brilliant. It, it kind of, it opened, it really opened us what we were doing up to other people and we were getting external reference and feedback and things. And, and they put an advisory board around us, three people who were going to kind of push us, and they were and they had frameworks and stuff for us to work on. They introduced me to the uh, model of growth mindset, that uh, like, you know this famous model made, made famous by uh, Carol Dweck in the United States. But that was really helpful for us because it then informed our recruitment, it informed our company culture, and and a lot of stuff we've done since. So it it really opened me up to that to that world of what else was out there and and what was relevant for us. So fantastic in in that respect it was we were we were a little bit of a square peg in round hole because on almost in day one in in East park uh I remember having a conversation with someone and they were like oh you you know are you looking for investment for people to invest in your business and me going no not really like well no in fact we're not we're definitely not um and then and almost being like oh like People kind of looking down their nose at that uh, as to, you know, where well where are you where are you getting your money from? <laughs> like, well, <laughs> our customers, you know. But that was it was bizarre to me that, that was a kind of a foreign concept in that in in that kind of setting. And it was all about um the whole kind of system was set up around getting you ready to to sell part of your business to investors, and they were kind of queuing up to to look at the production line of businesses that were coming through and, and, you know, being able to kind of in, in invest in them and accelerate them, I guess, and do whatever they were going to do. But it was, it, it was a very kind of strange concept for us. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it, it does. We have had a, a chat in the, in the past about this, this obsession in the, in the kind of Scottish uh, economic culture to, to get people to start up businesses, that kind of dragon's den thing. You, you, you get people, investors on board earlier on. And then the, the person who started the business ends up selling all or, or a large part of their equity. And I mean, we've, we've also, I know there's this, this obsession in, in Scotland with, with unicorns and so on. And something that we, we chatted about once before was this thing about everyone's desperate to find the next sky scanner or the next fan jaw. And there's an awful lot of effort. In every aspect of the, of the system, uh, aimed at finding these really big companies and, you know, it has to be tech companies. It's, it's, it has to be a kind of fashionable area, biotech, whatever. Uh, whereas, you know, lettings, you've, you've set up a business, you, you and Andy got 50 employees. You're here for the long term. You, you retain all the equity. You're, you're creating employment within Scotland and, and you know, paying taxes in, in the UK and, and so on. To me, that seems like a really, really important part of the, the Scottish economy. Do you think that there should be a little bit, bit more emphasis on encouraging startups that are going to grow organically and, and retain um, their, their roots in Scotland?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think there's two ways to look at that. I think if you've got the, the um, entrepreneur or the founder in mind, you know, there are a lot of the people who go into these uh, kind of accelerators is they're young or they're inexperienced, so they're not necessarily young in age, but they're they're inexperienced. I guess I mean everybody's everybody's inexperienced when they start out. Uh, you know what they're doing. Nobody's nobody's set up a business before in terms of where they're where they're trying to go, or, or very very few people have. So you're you're immediately you're always playing catch up with yourself in that respect, and I think. I think with these, with the accelerators and the incubators and the emphasis being on, oh, you need to sell equity, uh, to, to people who've got money, who are, who are looking to, who are looking to make money out of it. You're, I, I'm not convinced that's, that's in the best interest of most founders and entrepreneurs at that stage. So it's immediately there's, I think there's a, there's a conflict of interest between the, the system that's put together and the people who own that. So eSpark is an example. Um, You know, RBS went on to buy it when, when we were involved. RBS had donated all the premises. We had our advisory board and every advisory board in East Park. They had an RBS employee was one of the three seats on the, on the board. And I remember, uh, the RBS employee that was on our advisory board, uh, this guy saying to me, you know, you need to, uh, you you gotta, you know, you gotta push it harder. You got bigger, better, faster. And then you've got, Uh, he says, Neil, you just do this for just do this for three years. Just go crazy. Just go th- crazy for three years and then get out. You know, and that's get out. And this is this is a guy who who had 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 no experience of what he was talking about. But I at the time, I think I've got two two daughters. Um, I think they were one and three years old, and I was thinking, go what go crazy for three years. And then get out. Like, are you, are you serious? And (laughs) at at, at this, at this stage of my life, but also then what am I going to do next? You know, I've got into this. This is the company that I always wanted to work in. We believe in what we're doing. You know, we talk about smashing stereotypes in terms of what we're doing and and the, the impact that we can still have in the sector that we're working in is enormous. So they get out three years and do what? So it, but but he it, we were just speaking different languages. He just he didn't understand my perspective. I I think I understood his, which where he, he was just like I don't get it. Like you'll just your company will blow up. You could be massive. You'll you'll make a ton of money and then you walk off in the sunset. He's, you know, he there that he he's thinking that's what my best interest is in that relationship. And it, and it it's not. It couldn't be further from the truth. So you're there there's that whole um, uh, lost in translation that we're s- essentially speaking different languages. So there, there's that aspect of it from the, the second angle, the second way to look at it is from the systems perspective. You know, what is, what is the, the ecosystem, the Scottish ecosystem looking for? Maybe it is looking for the next big success story. Maybe it is looking for the next big. Unicorn, you know that's gonna be. I don't know that they're gonna sell to the Chinese like they did with Sky Scanner or whatever they do. I, I, you know, I don't Fanduel, you know, the, the essentially a betting platform now. That's uh, I think trades predominantly in the United States. So great, you're gonna you're gonna create these, you're gonna blow them up, and then you're and then and then they go what off to be? I don't know to be championed and and uh, does that encourage more? investment into Scotland does it bring is it does it encourage the next entrepreneurs to come through I don't I don't know I, I, I don't know because I don't I don't come at it from that perspective um what's your what's your take on it Fraser?
1: well you know I think the, the RBS guy that you spoke to is probably, I'm sure he was giving what he thought was his, his best opinion but you know I, I doubt that he'd ever run his own business and I think there's just a prevailing sort of attitude within the 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 kind of ecosystem, the, the the government side of it, the the public side, public sector side of it, because I have been on the the Scottish Enterprise Fast Track program a few years ago, and it was very much this thing. It was all I, I was much older than a lot of people on it. It was it was, it was mainly kind of people in their twenties who'd come up with a, a great idea for an invention or some sort of tech thing, and they were all being sort of encouraged to do very much what you've just described. You know, there was no talk of. Building their own sustainable business and retaining all the equity in it. it was all about we were being taught how to pitch to dragon, you know, to angels and whole dragon's den thing. And I I think a lot of people in that kind of public sector environment also haven't run their own businesses. That's not true of everyone, but, um, so there's this prevailing thing that, that, that that's what we need to do because it's kind of sexy. It's dragon's den. It's all about entrepreneurs, you know, whereas actually. I mean, I, I ran my own business for many years as well. I never regarded myself actually as an entrepreneur. I regarded myself as a, a, a owner manager of a business, which doesn't sound very, very exciting. But that is what the vast majority of the uh, businesses in Scotland are. And I, I think it would be. I think the other issue is that the a lot of the the bodies are promoting. Uh, entrepreneurialism Scotland uh, business growth in Scotland recruits all the usual kind of dragon's den type characters to come in and speak to people you know so if you're if you want to be serious about starting a business you're going to be hearing from all, you know all, all the the Duncan Bannertines of this world that will be dragged in on onto a stage and talk to you you won't be hearing so much from people like yourself who've organically built built a business and and you know, business that they've always wanted to work in, in, in your particular case. So I think there's a lot of food for thought there, isn't there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it, it's interesting when you think of the the people that you're talking about coming in are, are usually involved in putting these things together. Um, and you just, I don't know, you just can't help but feel there's a vested interest in that they've basically got this uh supermarket of businesses that are gonna that are conditioned and trained to fall over themselves at the offer of investment from from these people who who can then kind of take take the best ones and and, and invest in them and take them forward. And and if like the guy from RBS said to me is right, within three years the, the founder's out anyway or are kind of done and they're thinking, oh but that's the best that's the best thing for the founder. Great, they can walk off in the sunset. Uh, I'm not I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced to that at all.
1: Well, it's, a, it's an interesting debate. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's something that should be sort of perhaps encouraged more widely, but let's get back to today and, and, and the business. I mean, what, what impact did the pandemic have, have on things, Neil? And what consequences? We're all sort of embroiled in this cost of living crisis now. How do you see that affecting the, the kind of property sector? And, uh, I don't know much about the lettings world generally. Are there sort of some broader trends and patterns that you're very much aware of at the moment? There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a
0: lot to answer to that. So the the pandemic, yeah, not knocked the sector. Uh, Well, turned our business model kind of upside down. It was challenges we hadn't had to consider before. You know, we had. Uh, huge numbers of our portfolio, uh huge m- numbers of properties that we were responsible for, tenants just moving out overnight when the lockdown started because the universities were closing, or people's jobs were changing, or or you know whatever it was. And we've we were responsible for the people that we were employing and looking at how we can how we could still work in a remote setup and and look after everybody, make sure it was okay, as well as just uh, taking a big financial hit on on then responsible for empty properties, which meant we weren't making money from those empty properties, the fees weren't coming in, but it was a lot of work for us to then look after those owners and, and deal with the what was going on in the market and everything else. So our, the challenges faced in our business changed overnight. We restructured the whole business in the, in the space of 24 hours around keeping tenancies going and looking after the tenants and, and owners where, where the properties were, were tenanted and then keeping the market moving for the empty properties that were hitting the market. The market was being flooded And what we could do, uh, safely within the restrictions to basically try and, try and continue to help people get roofs over heads where, where they needed it. So it was, uh, that was a huge challenge. Um, and it was, yeah, it it was, it was extremely tough, but the, the team really rose to it. And I, yeah, I feel like we, we, we really kind of relished the challenge. Actually, it was hard, but it was, it was really kind of rewarding. It was just enjoyable being directly involved in everything that was going on. So, um, you know, where are we now, cost of living crisis. Yeah, there's, uh, that's, that's going to be extremely difficult to navigate. Although this, you know, there's some government intervention coming now around energy bills and that kind of thing. But yeah, we've got, Uh, I guess our, you know, we're looking at our employees, first of all, and how, how we can make sure they're supported, make sure they're getting what they're, what they need. Um, and then we're, you know, we're looking at our customers between our, our owners and our, and our tenants. Uh, you know, how are they, have they got what they need? What are the challenges they're facing? What are their predicaments? What, what more can we do to, to really help them, first of all, understand what's going on and then, and then kind of take actions and steps necessary to, to kind of navigate? Navigate things, and um, the house, what what's happening simultaneously is a very specific lettings challenge. Is that the there's been a decade of of um, chronic undersupply in the housing sector in Scotland. So probably somewhere in the or, or in excess of around a hundred thousand properties that should have that needed to be built in the last ten years and haven't been across Scotland. So we're now we've now got this lack of supply. Um, at the same time, you've got um, Less properties on the rental market than, than ever before. Uh, certainly in the 15 years that we've been doing it, we've never known a gap between supply and demand like we've got just now. Demand, tenant demand is up something like 154%. And there's only a third on the market of what there would usually be at this time of year. So this is just this huge gulf, which is creating an almost unmanageable, um, demand from prospective tenants. You know, we've got people walking into the office every day looking for properties that we just haven't got. You know, we're just struggling to, to kind of rent them out to people. So that's, that's creating different challenges for us because we, we can't let, let stock that we haven't got. Uh, the the rents as a result are shooting up. So Scottish government is understandably trying to do something to, to cool rents in the, in the cost of living crisis, but they, by limiting rents. So they've frozen rents over the winter on existing tenancies. All the indicators are that they're going to do something on the open market. They're going to cap rents somehow. Um, but which which is is an understanding kind of in, understandable intervention but the the downstream effect of that is it discourages landlords from getting into the market so you then have more landlords leaving the market you've less landlords coming in and this stock problem that we have at the moment uh where we've got only 25% of the stock that we would expect to have on the market at this time of year uh I guess worse uh, and and as and then rent rents want to go up again because we'll advertise a rent at 1200 a month we'll get 100 applications and you've then got tenants offering 1600 1700 a month for those properties understandably because they're 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 just they're desperate they're desperate to to get to get somewhere to live so it's it's a really complex situation. Um we're we're trying to navigate it. We're trying you know, we're engaging with government, the regulatory bodies, we're doing everything we can to help tenants uh and, and in a way that we can sustain, um, because it's uh it's a it's a tough challenge. So really just a really interesting time in the rental sector, and we've never known anything like it in 15 years, it's definitely a new challenge. It's one we're Responding to, um, but yeah, wh- wh- how it's how where we're going to be this time next year in terms of the rental sector, I I, I don't know. It doesn't. I can't see how it's going to change significantly.
1: I was going to ask you, Neil, if you have any sort of big uh, ambitions for the business sort of going ahead. But from the sound of things, is it just a case of of coping with with what's being thrown at you at the moment, or or is there some sort of big vision beyond that you're you're pushing towards
0: yeah we're, we're definitely pushing forward you know we're i think i think during the well during the covid pandemic it was just a case of of trying to consolidate and trying to just um make sure that we were going to be in decent shape on the other side of it uh we we came out of that phase about 12 months ago and it's and really we've been moving forward since then so we're our business is still growing you know our customer base is still growing as as we get uh better and better what we do is we as we understand the challenges better for our owners and our tenants and just what we can do for them so we're we're looking at, at significantly improving what we do over the next 12 months or so. That will, because of the market that we're in, it'll will, that will lead to kind of modest growth. It won't be spectacular, um, but it'll be there'll be sort of spectacular improvement underneath it, if that makes sense. Um we've also got into a state agency over the last couple of years, uh, because that's uh there's a sector with really similar conditions to the letting sector. You know, I talked about smashing negative stereotypes and pinstripe suits and all the things that we don't that we don't stand for that are the opposite of what we do um those conditions are are pretty pretty rife in the in the the solicitor estate agency market as well so so we're looking we're taking our approach into that we've been doing it for the last couple of years Um we're doing more and more sales all the time so that that's that's a really uh exciting growth area for us um within Edinburgh so yeah we're 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 not standing still we're really we're looking to push on we've got um we've got a long a long road ahead of us in terms of what we can do and the, and the dent that we can make so it feels like we're just getting started Um, but that's that's how it's always felt and it's um yeah it's quite a, it's quite an exciting way to feel to be honest
1: Great so lots to keep you occupied one question we always like to ask is if you could give one piece of advice to the young Neil McInnes as he was setting off into the world what would it be?
0: I think in terms of the Umega journey, I, th- I think just, um, understanding that it does, uh just being patient. I think, and we, we were, Andy and I were really frustrated in the early years where we knew our service was good. We knew we were better than a lot of what was out there. Um, but we just weren't seeing that in our growth. We weren't seeing that in our customer numbers. They were growing steadily, but, but not, uh, spectacularly. And then gradually that changed and it, and, and the business kind of tipped and we, you know, we really, we really kind of took off and were able to establish ourselves. And I think, I I think just understanding then, and I think the same is true now. Um, it will, it will all, it will all bear fruit. It will all come through. Like just keep going. Um, I think it's easy to think oh we're wasting our time here you know we've been we've been doing this thing for three or four months now and there's not we're not noticing an impact in our uh, in our growth numbers or anything but just understanding that focus on the problems focus on on solving the problems I should say and, and making and getting better at what we do um, and really keeping a strong customer focus it will work all of that will work out all of that will kind of will will come will come through so I think just, just stay the course, just just back yourselves, believe in what you're doing and just keep going.
1: Sound advice. And we're coming to the end now uh, and we've got five little quick questions to ask you. What's the first record you ever bought? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I believe it was an album called To The Next Level by a, a band called Eminate. And that's not, you know, that's not Eminate the, the full lettered spelled out word. That's the letters M and N and then the number eight. They were a terrible British R and B band from like, I don't know, the early nineties or something. Um, and that was the first
1: record I ever bought. Thank you for that Don't remember for that, that one. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, fucks me there. You know, you're a big sports fan. We, we know about the basketball. Tell us about a, a sporting moment, either playing or watching that really stands out for you.
0: Sticking with the basketball theme, I remember uh, when I was—I must have been about seventeen—we we went. My dad got got his tickets for me, my mum, my dad, and my sister. We went to Paris. Uh, to see the Ch- Michael Jordan led Chicago Bulls oh, came to came to Europe to play in a, in a tournament called the McDonald's Open where they were playing against like European champions and, and things and other teams from all over the world. and it was absolutely fantastic. Just you know I'd, I'd grown up idolizing Michael Jordan and everything that he'd done and yeah to go out there for a couple of games and see um, just see Michael Jordan you know doing his thing uh, in real life was was something I'll never forget.
1: Where is your favourite place in the world? Oh, probably the,
0: probably the Himalayas. I, I, we, had the, we we went out there in 2018. We took the kids. The, uh, the girls were only seven and nine, and um, Kelly and I went out there with, with the girls uh, in 2018. We did a trek. We, we we trekked in the Himalayas, and it was just. The most magical experience. I think the country of Nepal and the people are incredible, and and just the time that we had, and I think the age that the girls were and stuff. It was um, it was the trip of a lifetime. Something
1: I'll, I'll never forget. Amazing. Um, what is your signature dish in the kitchen? <laughs> your dish in the kitchen. <laughs> Uh, my
0: signature just in the kitchen. I don't know. I, I think what springs to mind, it's not te- It's in the outdoor kitchen. It's chicken wings on the barbecue. <laughs> I love that. And I, and I, I'm usually the one that eats most of them, but, um, I, you cannot beat chicken wings on the, uh, on the barbecue. And that is, yeah, that's something that come rain or
1: shine, always looking forward to getting out and doing those. Sounds good. Uh, and finally, Neil, what, what does your perfect weekend look like?
0: Perfect weekend. Uh we'd have to start with Parkrun on a Saturday morning. Uh that's something we tend to do as a four. Love it. Incredible organization. What a you know, there's a there's a lot to be learned from Parkrun, I think, and everything that they do. Amazing. Um and we, we'd then go to Bostock Bakery in East Linton, uh for some cardamom buns which are out of this world and then home for a barbecue obviously get the chicken wings on and then get the uh get the fireball lit and uh just yeah just sit under the stars and just um yeah just just uh enjoy ourselves i think
1: sounds great i've just had a bit of toast from bostock as well
0: nice. <laughs> you check you out
1: <laughs> the old sourdough. well neil thank you very much really interesting to to hear the, the story of you Mega, and um and your own sort of thoughts about the Scottish ecosystem for business startups, etc. Thanks very much. Thank you, Fraser. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. Bye for now.
0: To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.